We are concluding a season of the church calendar this morning. We have been journeying with Jesus towards the cross during the season of Lent. It's a part of the church calendar when we uh, contemplate and reflect, fast and pray, right up until Holy Week, which we begin today. Today is Palm Sunday, when in the life of Jesus, he enters into Jerusalem and the pace of his story picks up very quickly. In a very short period of time, he's going to be accused, he'll be flogged, he'll stand trial, people will give false testimony against him, and ultimately he will be executed by crucifixion. Later this week, uh, we will take time on Good Friday to reflect upon the suffering and death of Jesus. I want to invite you once again to uh, the very special service that we are, we are combining together with nine other multi-ethnic covenant churches in the Twin Cities. I think this is a, a first. I think it's a first, and I think it's going to be a really special time. Seven ethnically diverse pastors, both women and men, are going to preach the seven last words of Jesus. And I think it's going to be powerful. That's going to be at Sanctuary Covenant Church uh, at 7 p.m. on Good Friday. One of the reasons why I love Holy Week is that I think in the broader American culture, we are conditioned to rush to the happy ending, to rush to the good news. We love Easter, but we often don't stop and contemplate the sorrow in our lives, the challenges in our lives. We don't often sit in that discomfort, and that's what I think Good Friday is for. Good Friday is an opportunity for us to slow down and in this countercultural way to really enter into that time fully, sit in that tension. I think that's healthy. So that's why I'm excited about this Holy Week. This morning we're going to begin Holy Week in the life of Jesus with a reading from the Gospel of Luke. Uh, the account of Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem, which is often called the triumphal entrance. But before we read our passage, I want to do something a little bit interactive. Hopefully it's a little bit, you know, change of pace, slight change of pace. How many of you like to travel? Like to go to other places? And if you're like me, how many of you are like me? And when you go to another place, another city, another country, you want to find some historical monument that tells you a little bit about that place, right? Learn something about the history of it, you know, maybe the founder of it or whatever. So... Here's a photo of a monument, famous monument, in the city of Rome. It's a, it's a monument dedicated to Marcus Aurelius, who was uh, emperor of Rome a long time ago. And uh, of course, he's depicted in this statue riding atop a war horse. That's one of the things that he was known for. He's known for his wars with the Germanic tribes. Here's another photo of a monument, this time in France birthplace of William the Duke of Normandy who invaded England in the 11th century and became known as William the Conqueror. And he's depicted, once again, riding atop a war horse for obvious reasons. Here's a photo of a monument in the city of Valencia, Spain. This is James the first of Aragon, not the one from Lord of the Rings. <laughs> Some of you are thinking it, several of you. This is an actual place. And uh, James is known as James the Conqueror. 
They weren't very original back then. They just, you conquered something, yet that was your name. Um, he reigned and conquered in the 13th century in Spain and France. Are you noticing a pattern yet? In, in case you were thinking that this is just a European thing, this is Heinrich Krimpel in Turkey. And uh, this is Kim Jong-il. Go to the next one. <coughs> Kim Jong-il on the right in North Korea. So it's not just a European thing. We also have Emperor Menelik in Ethiopia. Yeah. And if you're thinking, oh, well, that's everywhere else, right? We don't do that kind of thing in the United States, right? Oh, we do. Oh, we do. This is uh, PGT Beauregard. That's a great name. His name is Pierre Gustave Toutant Beauregard. That's a name right there. That's in New Orleans. That's in City Park. Hold on. I didn't say go to the next slide. That's in City Park. We used to live not too far from there in New Orleans. Great park. And this is Boston Common. We also used to live in Boston. You can go to the next slide. George Washington, atop a war horse. All right, so, oh, last but not least, not to be outdone by these other lesser locations, Minnesota says, I will see your one horse, and I will raise you three more. This is called the progress of the state. And this is what it says in Minopedia. Did you know there was a Minopedia? Now you know. The more you know. Menopedia says, four horses represent the four uh, forces of nature. Earth, wind, fire, and water. Where's heart? Come on, Captain, Captain Planet is like, where's heart? Okay, two female figures holding the bridles control the forces of nature. They are agriculture and industry. And together they symbolize civilization. And the charioteer is prosperity. That's what it says. Uh, and he holds a staff, and the staff says, Minnesota. <laughs> okay, so why did I show you all these photos? Well, there's this pastor in, outside of Kansas City named Brian Zond, who I've learned a lot from. And he, he loves to travel. Travels all over the world. And this is what he says. He's famous for saying this. No matter where you go in the world, there's always some dude on a horse. There's always some dude on a horse. Why do you think that is? That's a rhetorical question. Why do you think that is? Why do you think that, regardless of different cultures, different parts of the world, and all throughout the ages, we all celebrate and commemorate these dudes on horses? Well, the answer could be pretty obvious. They represent our triumphs, our victories, our strength, our independence, our power. We celebrate them because that's who we want to be, and perhaps equally as important, that's who we want others to think we are. That's how we want to portray ourselves. Imagine visiting a beautiful, flourishing city, amazing works of art, amazing architecture, and you make your way through the city, and you finally reach the center of the city. And right there in the middle, up atop, some kind of pedestal, podium, there is a short, unimpressive-looking, sad man with no sword in his hand, no pistol, riding a small little donkey. 
you'd be like, what a town of losers. <laughs> you'd be like, who wants to live here? That's your founder? That's your leader? You might end your tweet, sad. And yet, that's exactly how Jesus shows up in our story this morning. You could follow along with me in your own translation if you have your if you have a Bible with you, whether it's an analog Bible or a digital Bible, or you could follow along on the screen behind me. I'm going to read uh, from the, the New Revised Standard Version. We're going to read from Luke chapter 19, verses 29 through 45. We're starting in verse 29. When he had come near Bethpage and Bethany, at the place called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find there tied a colt that has never been ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it, just say, The Lord needs it. So those who were sent departed and found it as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, Why are you untying the colt? He said, The Lord needs it. Then they brought it to Jesus, and after throwing their cloaks on the colt, they sat Jesus on it. As he rode along, people kept spreading their cloaks on the road. And as he was approaching the path down from the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the deeds of power they have seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, order your disciples to stop. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the stones would shout out. As he came near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, If you, even you, had only recognized on this day the things that make for peace but now they are hidden from your eyes. Indeed, the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up ramparts around you and surround you and hem you in on every side. They will crush you to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave within you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation from God. Then he entered the temple and began to drive out those who were selling things there. And he said, it is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. The word of the Lord. If you remember back to Christmas time, you remember that I titled my Christmas sermon Beyond the Flannel Graph Christmas Story. Remember that? Well, Palm Sunday can be another time of the year when a lot of us, our default setting is to revert back to Sunday school. And we picture Jesus as that little flannel man on the flannel donkey, on the flannel graph. And, you know, we remember the Hosanna song that we sang as kids. And we have this very two-dimensional caricature of Jesus on Palm Sunday. Happy Jesus riding his happy donkey with all the happy people singing, waving palm branches. It's like Disneyland. 
But if we actually read this account carefully, and if we, especially if we paid attention to the historical and cultural context, we'd find that the three-dimensional landscape of this story bears no resemblance to Disneyland whatsoever. The reality was that Jerusalem in the first century, on that first Palm Sunday, was a sweltering, hot, overcrowded powder keg of religious and political unrest. Not so Disneyland-like. People in Jerusalem at the time were desperately poor and in desperate need of hope. And thousands of pilgrims were streaming into the city for Passover. Some, some estimates say that, Passover, uh, that Jerusalem quadrupled or five times more than the actual residents of the city. They're hot, they're tired from their travels, but each time they come to Jerusalem for Passover, they're reminded of that story. They're reminded that God liberated Israel from Egyptian bondage. They're reminded that God is a liberator. But they're also reminded that they're currently under Roman occupation. They're not free. So there's this tension. God is their savior, but they're not free. So Jerusalem felt like this really hostile place. Felt really tense. Because the Roman Empire was exceedingly brutal. It was creatively brutal. Crucifixion is like a scientific way to inflict the most pain possible. And torture. So those were the people in charge. Those were the people that were running the place. And that first Palm Sunday, there was a lot of opportunity for violence. A lot of opportunity for rioting. And while Jesus is entering the city from the east, there was another processional entering from the west. And this processional was led by Pontius Pilate, who you'll remember from the, from the Easter story. He is the Roman governor of Judea and Samaria. And he's leading his processional, not like Jesus, but like a Roman triumph. A symbol of military might, of wealth, prestige, superiority. His processional was like a warning to the people of Jerusalem. You see these soldiers that are marching with me? Don't get on their bad side. Don't let anything happen getting out of control, because these guys will cut you down. That was the message of his processional. This sort of reminder from Rome was a source of outrage. It was like desecrating holy space. Because for, for the Jewish people, Jerusalem was the center of the world. This is the city of David. This is where God is going to uh, bring a king who will reign in the way that David reigned and have an everlasting kingdom. And he's not just going to rule over the Jewish people, he's going to rule over everybody, including these pagan Romans. So this was a source of outrage. Every year, every week, every day that the Romans controlled Jerusalem was a day that revolutionary violence could break out. And there was this revolutionary expectation that was prevalent among the Jewish people in Jerusalem. And it's because of this guy, Judas the Hammer Maccabeus. 
I've talked about him before, because I think his name sounds like a WWF wrestler. <laughs> Judas the Hammer Maccabeus. I can see him jumping off the top rope. He was a Messiah figure a couple centuries before Jesus who liberated Israel from the, this uh, kind of a Greek dynasty. And for a short, brief time, Israel was independent until they were squashed by the next empire. So you can see that there, in first century Jerusalem, they wanted a dude on a horse. They wanted a warlord. They wanted somebody to come and liberate them. They wanted like James the Conqueror or somebody like that. And I think that that's not unlike all of us. That's not unlike the United States of America. That's not unlike Minnesota. That's not unlike you and me. We all sort of want somebody to destroy our, our enemies and, and fix our circumstances, right? Fix everything around me. Make everything better. We all want to win, right? That's why we elect leaders who promise we're going to win so much, we're going to get sick of winning. But very rarely in our world are there so obvious symbols of our idolatry as the you know, dude on a horse. We worship power. We worship that kind of conquering, dominating power. But what our text this morning reveals is that Jesus clearly portrays himself as not another dude on a horse. Someone who merely replaces one tyrant with a new tyrant. Or one warlord with a new warlord. Right? Jesus shows up on the peace donkey. He deliberately stages an entrance in which he follows in the footsteps of the prophecy of Zechariah, who said that he would put an end to war. And instead of gathering fighting men and marching with an army, instead of a show of wealth and superiority, Jesus shows us the humble character of God. What does it say about us? That we want our dude on a war horse. But Jesus shows up on a peace donkey. What does it say about us that we want to win? But to us, God in Jesus on a peace donkey looks like a loser. When my children were a little bit younger, I used to read to them from this, uh, this wonderful little children's book called Donkeys and Kings by Trip York. And he tells eight Bible stories from the perspective of the animals in the stories. It's great. Really good. I highly recommend it. Uh, but the star of the book, by far, is George the donkey that Jesus rode into Jerusalem. And he's my favorite character in the whole book. And uh, George finds himself stabled with the royal horses of Caesar's court. And they are not happy at all about the ruckus that this donkey and his rider have caused. In fact, they're outraged at his presumptuousness to be in a processional at all. So here's what the arrogant stallion named Constantine says to George, the donkey that Jesus rode on that first Palm Sunday. He says, your kind does not get to make history. History is made by the strong, the powerful, those in charge. It's made by kings, Caesars, warriors, 
government officials, nobility, and stallions. It's not made by the weak, the lowly, those filled with resentment for their small and insignificant place in life. It's not made by creatures like you or the one you gave a ride into the city. I think that the stallion Constantine, he gives voice to the way the world has, the way the world gone wrong has, the way it works. We know that the world right now is currently broken. And we know that this is how the world works. The powerful make history. The lowly get trampled. And here's what happens when corp the corporate bodies that we're a part of operate like that. Whether we're talking about churches or cities or countries. Whenever we worship winning at all costs, what happens is the innocent suffer. Hurting others becomes a small price to pay for winning. Compromising our alleged values becomes no big deal. And human casualties, oh well, they are collateral damage in our path towards winning. When we make winning our God, we trample others on our way to what we think success looks like. But the reality is, and this is key, you can't arrive at success on a path of destruction. A path of destruction always leads to what? More destruction. What would happen if we stopped and asked ourselves a couple questions like this? What are you and I striving towards? What is our picture of success? What is the triumph that we are trying to achieve? Sometimes what happens in our lives is that while we are on our paths, striving for our pictures of success or winning, whatever that is, God will send a prophet to us. Maybe not a person, but a word to us, to warn us. And oftentimes, we don't listen, do we? Oftentimes, we silence that voice. We turn away from that prophet. Have you ever plugged your ears and refused to hear a word from God when you were on your path to success? When you had your picture of winning and you were determined to get there? Have you ever been the one who tried to warn someone and been silenced? That's the sinful way that the world works. To those with power, to those with plans on winning, people and prophets become obstacles. But the hero of our story today challenges all that. Because the hero of our story today is not a successful dude on a war horse. It's the unarmed non-violent prophet riding on a peace donkey, weeping over the city. This is how God shows up in our lives. God is not a wrathful warlord, slaying his enemies, conquering people. God shows up in our lives like Jesus, a humble king. Our text this morning shows Jesus following in the prophetic footsteps of Jeremiah. Jeremiah was another prophet who warned Jerusalem about the impending destruction that they were going to be conquered. 
And now, Jesus is warning Jerusalem once again that the second temple, the one that Herod rebuilt, bigger and better, is about to be destroyed just like the first one. And like Jeremiah, Jesus is weeping over the violence that's going to take place in the city. He knows that if they continue on their present course, that they will be met with the same fate as those who rose up in the first, in the Maccabean revolt. And this is from just a few chapters earlier in Luke. Jesus says, oh, Luke says, now there were some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans. Galileans loved to revolt. They were constantly rising up against Rome. Told them about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. And Jesus answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all of the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. Those who told Jesus this story, they were enraged by it. There was no greater desecration for Jewish people in this time than to have your blood mixed with the blood of sacrifice. It was unclean upon unclean. So naturally, they thought two things. They thought the Romans deserved to be destroyed for this desecration, and they believed that the Galileans clearly didn't have God on their side, or they wouldn't have failed. Only victory through violence proves that God was on their side, they thought. So Jesus completely overturned their thinking. And he warns them that unless they repent of this violent, revolutionary thinking, that they too will also be destroyed. And of course, Jesus was right. Because in 70 AD, a violent Jewish uprising led to the complete destruction of Jerusalem and the Jerusalem temple. And like Jeremiah, Jesus wept over Jerusalem. That they continually refused to heed his warning that they didn't listen to the voice of God and repent of their ways. This is from a, a few verses later. At that time, some Pharisees came to Jesus and they said to him, leave this place and go somewhere else. Herod wants to kill you. And Jesus replied, go tell that fox, I will drive out demons and heal people today and tomorrow, and on the third day I will reach my goal. In any case, I must keep going today and tomorrow and the next day, for surely no prophet can die outside of Jerusalem. And then he said this, O oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But you were unwilling. Look, your house is left to you desolate. I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We think Jesus is here to rubber stamp our plans. We think Jesus has come to bless us and give us victory. We think Jesus has come to give us what we think peace looks like, which is often a false peace. But Jesus says this at one point. He says, do you think I have come to bring peace to the earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. Hallelujah. 
That's not the word we want, is it? Jesus isn't interested in maintaining a false peace, the status quo. Jesus is interested in the real, lasting shalom that starts with repentance. If you really meet Jesus, he will mess you up. How many of you can relate to that? When I met Jesus when I was 16, wrecked my life. Totally derailed my plans. I was going this way, and it was like, bam! Now I'm going this way. <laughs> Jesus is that prophet who comes into our lives and gives us the word from God that we often don't want to hear. And he weeps over those who will be the unwitting casualties of our disobedience. But we're often so fixated on our agendas. We're so intent on getting our way. We're so certain of what we believe that when Jesus comes under the guise of a powerless, weeping prophet, we reject him. When God sends people into our lives, we refuse to listen. That makes us Jerusalem. We are Jerusalem in the story. That's who we are. We are the stubborn and often stiff-necked people who just want to win at all costs. We want a war horse rider, not a donkey rider. This reminds me of a time in my life when I was very confident that I was on the right path. Felt like I had done everything right and I was experiencing obstacles. That's what I thought. I thought that, you know, I was doing the right thing, but for some reason things weren't working out. So I went to visit a mentor of mine. A mentor who had spoken into my life many times in the past and given me really clear guidance, which I felt like was from God. And I went to him in the hopes that <laughs> he was going to reaffirm my plans. I went to him in the hopes that he was going to give me a word of encouragement. And so I told him what was going on in my life. And I told him how I wasn't experiencing the success that I thought that I would experience. And this is what he said to me. He said, DC, did you know that when I started out in ministry, I was convinced that I was going to be an army chaplain? I was like, no, I didn't know that. An army chaplain? He's like, yeah. I wanted to be an army chaplain. And then God called me to be a youth pastor. And I was like, really? He's like, yeah. He said, uh, and then after I was a youth pastor for nine years, I still felt like I was going to be an army chaplain. And then God called me to pastor this church. And I knew what church he was talking about because I used to attend that church. And I knew that he was nearing retirement. And he had been at that church for like 20-something years. And he was like, at the end of all that, I still thought that I would someday be an army chaplain. He's like, I'm still not going to be an army chaplain. And I was like, wait, 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 wait. This is not what I'm trying to hear right now. Are you saying that I could be on this path and so certain that I'm headed towards success and maybe God wants me to change course and go in a different direction? He's like, I'm not saying that, but maybe God is. Ouch. <laughs> it, it, it hurt. I was crushed. I was like, what does this mean? It means that we have our plans. We have our ways. We're even often very certain that we're headed towards success. But God sends a prophet riding a donkey to call us to repentance. 
to show us the ways that make for peace. Not the false peace of the status quo, of just plugging away day by day towards the American dream, but the real, true, lasting shalom that takes repentance, a new outlook on life. Did you know that, this is really, this is really key, did you know that the ends we seek have to be present in the means that we use to achieve them? We can't bomb our way to peace. We can't lie our way to trust. You can't manipulate your way to intimacy. And you can't abuse your way to friendship. I love how Dr. King put it. This is, this is a powerful quote. Dr. King said, We will never have peace in the world until people everywhere recognize that ends are not cut off from the means. Because the means represent the ideal in the making and the end in process. Ultimately, we can't reach good ends through evil means. Because the means represent the seed and the end represents the truth. That's a good word. We, say we, we often say we want peace in our lives, but we live these disjointed, disconnected lives that don't lead to peace, don't produce peace. We often say we want relationships of trust, but we live virtual lives and we wear masks. That doesn't produce trust. So again, I ask, what is it that we are striving for? What is it that represents a win for you and me? Whatever that destination is, I want you to imagine that as your temple. That is the temple in the center of Jerusalem. That's the place where your hope resides. That's the place where you want to end up. But Jesus often comes into that temple and he overturns the tables. Jesus is the prophet that says, you've been holed up in this temple like it's a den for robbers. That's not where you belong. Your hope, your destination, your telos, that, that, that win is me. I'm the one that you should be striving for. I'm the one that you should be sticking close to. As long as you're with me, you're winning. Palm Sunday is good news because it reminds us that God's kingdom has broken into a world that is full of wrong means to bad ends. God's kingdom has broken into a world through the Messiah who is not interested in ideas about our winning, our success. He's the king of an altogether different kingdom. Palm Sunday is a call to you and I for repentance. To repent of idolatry, of power, success, and to surrender our lives to the humble king. Pray with me. Humble King Jesus, you alone are victorious. You alone are the true temple where God's presence is made manifest on earth. You alone are the word of God made flesh. Forgive us for how we've stubbornly clung to our idols of power and success. Forgive us for 
having been stiff-necked and rejected your prophetic word. Forgive us for how we have chosen to go our own ways, often the way of domination and violence. Grant us your Holy Spirit so that we may desire your way, the way that makes for true peace, lasting shalom, not the false peace of the status quo, but the peace of, that comes from repentance and justice and new life. We pray all this in the name of the God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And all God's people said, Amen.